The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box and here are your headlines. Well, phase one is done. The U.S. and China officially reached the first stage of a trade agreement. I spoke exclusively with the U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin here in Doha. The deal will be signed in early January and then we'll start phase two. And phase two may be 2A, 2B, 2C. We'll see. But this is this into itself is a huge accomplishment for the president. Mixed data from China's industrial and property sectors in November raising questions about the direction of the world's number two economy. Fresh from winning a significant majority, newly elected British Prime Minister Boris Johnson vows to move quickly to secure approval for his Brexit deal. And President Trump faces a historic House impeachment vote this week, likely setting up a trial in the Republican-controlled Senate. At this hour, UN climate talks end with little progress on curbing carbon emissions. China's BAIC Mosher reportedly wants to double its stake in Germany's Daimler to top rival Geely. And a tasty deal, IIF will buy DuPont's nutrition and bioservices business, creating a consumer giant worth $45 billion. U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has told CNBC the interim trade deal with China will boost global growth. He added the next phase of an agreement between the U.S. and China could come in stages. Well, let's get straight out to Hadley, who joins us from Doha with more on Mr. Mnuchin's comments. Hadley, good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. It was definitely a victory lap for the U.S. Treasury Secretary. You'll remember, of course, President Trump coming out, announcing this phase one of the deal, calling it a phenomenal deal, he said, for both China and for the United States. And it was seemingly uh, that comment that uh, Secretary Mnuchin was keen to emphasize in his comments to me, not just in our panel over the weekend, but in our exclusive interview as well. Looking back on 18 months of pain, essentially, with these U.S.-China talks, he was very keen to point out that while phase one uh, had been accomplished, that when we think about what's going to happen next in terms of phase two and a timeline, he suggested to me that it could be a little bit longer, in fact, than many people have been hoping for, including people within the president's own party. I had the chance to ask him, do you think that the president needs to get this trade deal done to get reelected? And he said, nope, the president's getting reelected and all on the basis, he said, of the health of the U.S. economy. Listen in to what he had to say. This is a historic deal. Uh, We've never had anything like this. It addresses very significant issues, technology transfer, intellectual property, structural agricultural issues, financial services, and currencies. So we couldn't be more excited about the impact that this is going to have on the U.S. economy and U.S. jobs. Uh, We're going to go through a very short period of time of having the translation scrubbed. Uh, The deal will be signed in early January, and then we'll start phase two. And phase two may be 2A, 2B, 2C. We'll see. But this this into itself is a huge accomplishment for the president. What do you say to those critics who complain that this phase one didn't accomplish anything, really? Well, in all fairness, people are just beginning to understand the details of phase one. 
We're in the process of putting out fact sheets that go through what it is. You know, this has been a long process over the last two years and people have seen the ups and downs. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time for people to digest the significance of this. Mr. Mnuchin, they're pretty keen to point out, I think, that uh, this is something that is going to evolve over the next several days. They were waiting, he said, for the scrub transcripts uh, of the Chinese and, and U.S. talks before they were releasing all of the significant details here. But essentially what you've got is China agreeing to buy billions of dollars worth of U.S. agricultural products. And essentially they're saying to me that we're hoping, the United States anyway, that that will nearly double um, exports to China over the next two years. So he was consistent with that narrative, guys, uh, that this was not only good for the president, but good for China, that this was a, a very solid first move, at least on the part of these talks after 18 months of significant uh, pain and a lot of uncertainty and seemingly pretty confident, again, that the president really doesn't need to get this trade deal done before 2020 in terms of the election. I also asked him something very significant to people in this part of the world. We talk a lot about weaponizing oil, using oil as a weapon, but also now as a result of these U.S.-China talks, as well as the sanctions on Iran and sanctions on North Korea and elsewhere, we also are forced to talk very seriously about the weaponizing of the dollar. I had the chance to ask Mr. Mnuchin um, how he assesses the risk uh, of, to the dollar with the, the use in that way, because at the end of the day, folks in this part of the world, I got to tell you, do actually have conversations about finding an alternative to the U.S. dollar. Listen into what he had to say. Let me be clear. We are not weaponizing the U.S. dollar. If anything, I would say the opposite. Uh, I take great responsibility that people use the dollar as the reserve currency of the world. And uh, the dollar is quite strong. Sometimes the president, uh, as you know, says the dollar is too strong. Uh, the dollar is strong because the U.S. economy and because people want to hold dollars and the safety of the U.S. dollar. So because of that, we take sanctions responsibility very seriously. Matter of fact, I personally sign off on every single sanction that we do. And we have to balance. The reason why we're using sanctions is because they are an important form, an alternative for world military conflicts. And I believe it's worked. So whether it's North Korea, whether it's Iran, whether it's other places in the world, we take this responsibility very seriously. And for the comment this morning, uh, the, the prime minister said, well, uh, there should be international rules. Uh, and at the UN, there should be for people's own currencies. People don't have to use the dollar. Uh, we have the right to put restrictions on people who use the dollar. And you know, over a long period of time, you're right. If we're not careful, people will look at using other currencies. It's a fascinating conversation with the Treasury Secretary. I was also sitting on stage, I might add, with the finance minister of Qatar as well. And I turned to him and I said, you know, would you use renminbi? Uh, would you accept renminbi for LNG exports? And he kind of waffled there. And I pushed again and he said, you know, we're, we're open to all currencies. We do uh, accept all currencies. We're not just talking about Chinese currency. We're talking about euro, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's really interesting to watch this going forward because in the conversations that I've had, particularly over the last couple of months, following the attacks on Aramco, I asked the former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, specifically about the sanctions regime that we've seen coming out of the United States. Mr. Mushin, as you just heard, saying that they're using sanctions as an alternative to military force. So the only alternative to military force is sanctions, essentially saying that to me. Okay, so 
the former Secretary of State saying, you know, we thought about increasing our sanctions on Iran with regards to their nuclear program. We thought about increasing sanctions when it comes to China, but we felt that sanctions would be too damaging uh, for those countries' economies and to the global economy, and we just never were able to do that. She was even expressing surprise that the Trump administration has gone as far as they have. So pretty interesting conversations, I got to tell you guys, with the Treasury Secretary and other so over the weekend here in Dona. Very, very interesting way to close out the year, guys. Hadley, let me ask you about some of the key market concerns this morning. That's whether China can can actually come up with the 50 billion in fund purchases. And that's been one of the main stumbling blocks as many investors weigh up the ability to meet that target. What do you think? What did you hear from Steve Mnuchin on that front? That was, a, that was the key issue there, Karen, because when we pushed him for further and further details, he said, I want folks to wait and give this a chance to percolate because at the end of the day, we still haven't gotten the transcripts out of exactly what these trade talks uh, were going to actually bring forward or bring to the table. Uh, and that's why he seemed to suggest that phase one was uh, a success, but at the same time that they still had a long way to go. And when it was interesting, when I pushed him on that, he was saying, you know, when we talk about stage two, we're not just talking about, you know, stage two being the final end all agreement. We're talking about the potential for a stage two A, a stage two B, a stage two C. So in terms of the final detail, Details there and whether or not the Chinese are really going to be accepting of that. So far, at least, obviously, Chinese officials have come out pretty positively. They've been keen as well to express support for something they say actually did accomplish quite a bit. But in terms of the details, the devil, as you know, is in the details and we're still waiting to hear more. Exactly. Hadley, thank you very much for that. Meantime, Chinese industrial production growth has hit its highest level in five months amid signs domestic stimulus is starting to take hold. Other key data also met or beat expectations. Retail sales rose 8% in November after another record singles day and fixed asset investment was steady at 5.2%. However, new home prices grew at their slowest pace in nearly two years. Top U.S. trade negotiator Robert Lighthizer has said the phase one U.S.-China pact is a, quote, totally done deal despite a lack of detail on revisions, timetable and translation. The U.S. trade representative said the agreement, which officials aim to sign in early January, would nearly double U.S. exports to China over the next two years. Beijing has not confirmed the American assertion. It has committed to buy $40 billion worth of agricultural products annually. Well, let's get out to Eunice for more from Beijing. Eunice, everybody's trying to read between the lines of that uh, Chinese press conference as well. Just talk us through some of the key issues and the details as Hadley's just been fleshing out for us. Well, um, as, as Hadley had mentioned, officially, a Chinese, uh, the Chinese have been very positive about the outcome of this phase one trade deal. The uh, top diplomat over the weekend, uh, Wang Yi, had said that this uh, trade deal is bullish uh, not only for the two countries, but also the rest of the world. And that's the sentiment that we've been hearing in the state press. And again, today at the National Statistics Bureau, when the officials there, uh, when they were releasing the or after they released the Chinese economic data, had said that the phase one trade deal uh, would help to um, boost market expectations. And um, so so overall, um, this is being seen, at least officially, as a positive because uh, there is now a truce or at least a pause in some of the uncertainty and the tensions. However, uh, the official at the National Statistics Bureau also seemed to hint some of those um, important uh, key, that some of these important key points um, had been lost in translation uh, by saying that 
that the U.S. and China would continue with their negotiations um, and to remove the tariffs. And that has been one of the uh, question marks um, and uh, the possible uh, points that had been uh, confused a bit because the Chinese have said that these tariffs would be rolled back step by step. Um, that's what they said on Friday. And then the U.S. has said that there was no promise for a tariff phase out. The uh, U.S. has also, as you pointed out, uh, said that there are hard targets of uh, $40 billion in agricultural purchases by the Chinese, a doubling of the overall purchases over the next couple of years. And uh, the Chinese have not confirmed those figures at all. And then the final point is on the phase two. So the Chinese have said that uh, the phase two negotiations would only begin after the execution of the phase one agreement and would be dependent on that execution. Uh, but the um, the uh, U.S. And, and in particular, President Trump had said that that phase two is going to start right away and those negotiations are going to start. Lighthizer uh, took a little bit of an issue and put some distance between him and President Trump when he said that there was no date set for phase two. But still, there are a lot of questions as to what was really agreed to in this uh, trade deal and um, some concern now that there is uncertainty that could potentially scupper this this trade deal, even though uh, Secretary Mnuchin had said that that the signing is supposed to happen in early January. Excellent. Eunice, loving your work. Thank you very much indeed for that today. Right. OK, so a lot of things have potentially been given clarity, a lot of situations we were worried about throughout 2019. But why haven't the markets gone cock-a-hoop on the back of it? That's a technical term, by the way. For instance, we now have clarity that rates probably not moving for quite a while stateside as well. Markets taking it well. We have clarity, we believe, that actually a detente is going on on the US-China trade negotiations. We do have a degree of clarity on the direction of the United Kingdom, looking at other factors regarding Brexit. We'll get more, of course, towards the tail end of this week and in early January as well. So a lot of situations we've been pondering uh, and would potentially add volatility to the market have been doused, haven't they? But why didn't the markets get excited about it? Look at this. Look at the reaction to the Dow uh, on the back of the hopes and then confirmation that trade talks were going in the right direction in terms of those who were looking for some form of rapprochement. Uh, the S&P 500 didn't move. And, and maybe the proof is actually in the pudding for the year. And we can't separate the two. Because if you look at the performance of the major US indices since Christmas Eve last year, so we're virtually talking year on year now, they are absolutely stunning. Stunning performance. If you were long, if you were short the market, you've had an absolute disaster, I'm afraid. Uh, 29% up the Dow, 35% up the S&P, and the Nasdaq up 41%. It's not to say the US markets didn't enjoy the flavour of the news flow in the previous week. Up 0.4 of 1% on the Dow, up 0.7 of 1% on the S&P, and up 0.9% on the Nasdaq, driven by tech, driven by semiconductors, which had a particularly good week. But it's the, it's the fact that actually more tempered reaction now. And I can't help thinking people have had such a good year to the upside. Maybe they don't want to make too many more aggressive bets. Maybe they don't have to make too many more aggressive bets. I do want to just recap, though, on one more thing, if I may, if you'll indulge me on this. Because did you see the retail sales? And that's a message to you and the audience and to, to my colleagues as well, because I'm going to come back to this one. Retail sales, Jeff and Karen, because they're still chatting away, um, were absolutely average. 
They were really average. And yet, did you hear all that noise a couple of weeks ago when I'm going, no, 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 no. I was saying to you, don't look at Cyber Monday. Don't worry about Black Friday. It's a tiny couple of days. You have to look at the broader picture. And look, did you see the retail sales were only up 0.2 of 1%. Now, you can look at the seasonals, you can look at days that were captured and weren't captured. But the point of the matter is, despite that ridiculous amount of noise from people going, look at Black Friday, it's extraordinary. And look at Cyber Monday, it's amazing. The fact of the matter is, in the round, the figures were really average. And when 70% of the US economy surround the consumer, that is important data to look at. In the meantime, got that off my chest. I know Jeff and Karen weren't even listening, but there you are. Uh, WTI, a 59.89. Brent still trading towards the top end of its recent trading range, down 0.2 of 1% at 65.08. Would you like to look at the Asian markets? I certainly would, so we're going to do it anyway. Uh, Shanghai Composite is up three tenths of 1%. Again, really tempered reaction. Better reaction on the Shenzhen, though. 1.2% uh, to the upside uh, on the back of, of hopes for uh, further News on the trade one deal with 86 pages. We only had the summary so far. Proof of the pudding, of course. Will the Chinese buy all those billions of dollars worth of agricultural goods? Will uh, US farmers benefit? Very important issue for Mr. Trump, isn't it? Four tenths of 1% higher for the Hang Seng. Right, opening calls for European markets look like this. The FTSE 100. I will tell you what the FTSE did last week. Uh, 7,400 is where it's currently. It was good. It was good performance. It was up 1.6% last week. But was it stellar? Was it the Brexit trade relief? Was it the uh, government, cohesive government, whether you're blue or red or orange or yellow? The fact of the matter is, it was a good move to the upside, but it wasn't one of those wham, bam ones that could have been even bigger. But we enjoyed ourselves nonetheless down at Abingdon. Nice to see you in my, yeah. in my muddy enclave for once. Yes, yeah. It was you coming wet. back down with me this week? It was wet and it was cold. Do you want to come back down this week? No, not really. Why not? Because it was wet and it was cold. <laughs> we got free grub, though. Uh, yeah, that's not my sole criteria for pleasure on an OB, I must be honest. Hey, you have to take it where you can get it when you're down at Abingdon. Uh, we've got to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. A Brexit vote before Christmas. The returning Prime Minister doubles down on his promise to leave the EU in January after securing an 80-seat majority in Parliament. Just a reminder, if you can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. If you enjoy Squawkbox Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Welcome back. Fresh from the UK Conservative Party's biggest election win in 30 years, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson plans a Brexit vote before Christmas. British lawmakers could be asked to debate the withdrawal agreement bill as early as Friday, although one of my sources said look, they were prepared to go in on Saturday, would you believe as well, seeing as that's a new precedent being set. Anyway, Mr Johnson says the election result gives him an overwhelming mandate to take the UK out of the EU by January 31st. The Prime Minister also aims to negotiate a trade deal with the EU in just 11 months. And despite some scepticism, Cabinet Minister Michael Gove told Sky News that the timetable is doable. 
It will be concluded next year. We'll be um, uh, in a position, as I say, to leave the European Union before the 31st of January of next year. And then we'll have concluded um, our conversations with the EU about the, the new framework of free trade and friendly cooperation that we will have with them by the end of next year. Michael Gove there. Meanwhile, the Labour leadership has apologised for the party's worst election results since 1935, writing two articles in the Sunday papers. Jeremy Corbyn said the defeat was, quote, a body blow for everyone who so desperately needs real change. He has vowed to step down in the new year and the race is on to find a replacement. Some of the names being floated include Shadow Business Secretary Rebecca Long-Bailey, uh, Wigan MP Lisa Nandy, and Shadow Brexit Secretary Sir Keir Starmer. Start, the front-runner's got to be Emily Thornberry, hasn't it? Well, there are... Uh... She's a cabinet of Shadow Cabinet. She's yes. experienced. She's a great um, speaker, whether you like her politics or not. She's, yes. Uh, I, I can't believe she's not on there. Well, the problem is that she London is... Intelligentsia. Well, and she's associated with the failure of the Labour Party through this election. I mean, let's face it, there are a number of those names. Um, I, I know that you've been looking at the Twitter spat between Emily Caroline Thornberry Flint. and Caroline Don Flint. Don Valley, yeah. And Caroline Flint has made it very clear that she feels that there is a group, and some of the names were on that list, who cannot escape blame. This cannot be put down to just Corbyn and John McDonnell. There has to be other names in the frame who allowed this to happen. And Keir Starmer is mentioned, um, Emily Thornberry is mentioned, mm. and those are some of the people who sit in the second candidate. line ready to step forward. Look, I understand the argument. I've looked at it for a long time, and I've, I've actually spoke to Caroline Flint um, at Labour Party conferences previously as well. But yeah. you've got to remember, Caroline Flint uh, was probably very close to doing a, a chukramuna, as we say, which is going over to the TIGs or the independent group or the Lib Dems or whatever you want to say. She, yeah. She's virtually, I mean, she is a, a, a new Labour, Blairite type politician. Uh, people would, you know, very anti-momentum as well. So the civil war, which we've been seeing, and I made this point on Friday, I don't know if everyone agrees or not, they're, they're very welcome not to, but I would say the civil war that we've seen in both major parties looks like having been ended certainly for now, I mean, the Conservatives in the government because of a thumping victory and what Boris Johnson says now goes within his party. Mm. That, that's the way. He's got the authority. Mm. But the civil war which we've seen going on between Momentum and the Blairites over the last three, four, five years will continue. And it's going to be very, very nasty for a very long time. Caroline Flint represents the centre. Um, someone like Emily Thornberry perhaps is a compromised candidate, despite the very clear point you say that she has to take her fair share of responsibility of being a key member of the shadow cabinet. I want to take to the markets because it was very clear Friday's session that there was a stripping out of some of the risk around Corbyn policies and nationalisation of certain industries. And uh, if you look even at the home builder reaction to very strong pops, it was quite a stunning day on the equity side. I think almost less so. I mean, pound is what we've been watching for the political risk. But it was in the stocks that you saw a lot of the action Friday's session. And if you get more of a, a very far left again replacement, then you've got to say some of that risk comes back in. But if you don't, then is it a clear well, run around some of the utilities now? Let, let, let's just bring this back to the wall conversation that you were having there, because we didn't talk specifically about the markets here. But I think you made a very interesting uh, series of points, as always. But the Not questions always, you've got to you. ask yourself, and it comes around to the FTSE, particularly at this point as well. Um, is this market only going to be driven higher by FOMO at this stage and playing the other guy who is, you think, going to put money in because they are concerned about missing out as well? Because let's face it, the data, the valuations, the earnings, 
All the fundamental reasons to buy equities at this point are suggesting that you need to temper your enthusiasm as we run into 2020. And yet, we know that there is still money around and there is this great fear that you miss out from a reversion to the mean rally in the FTSE 100 because we know that this is a market that has underperformed relative to the United States and some of its European peers because of Brexit and because of the politics. Brief, very brief point. Um, just measure it against other international indices now that this risk has been taken out um, of, of, you know, dare I say at the risk of a, a, a very left-wing government. Um, the S&P trades at 2.3 times yield. The DAX trades at 2.98 times yield. And the FTSE trades at 4.6% yield. So unless you think Brexit is going to be calamitous for the FTSE 100, maybe that is a valuation measure that you can actually hang your coat on now. Do you also start to look at some of the risks now and some of the stock price moves? I mean, the, the home builder market has been incredible. Barrett up 70% yesterday, 70%. Can you justify that? And some of these, these prices now trading higher than the pre-Brexit level they were trading at. So do you start to question whether those the dynamics are correct? Is. They, they, this is normally I criticise governments and home builders for not building enough homes. They built about two hundred forty thousand houses in the last twelve months. This is one of the best figures we've seen in the last twenty years as well. So the major criticism against the house builders has been you haven't built enough houses. Well, they kind of have in the last year. So it, it's still a very good question though about what happens now about the consumer as well and consumer debt levels. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.